I would encourage you to uh, open up your Bibles. As together this evening, we're going to be looking at Ephesians once again. And specifically, we're going to be looking at chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. Chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. Remember that uh, Paul, in his letter, has already made his pivot to uh, the applications of the theological truths that he's been uh, spreading forth. And you remember, of course, that the greatest of these truths is our identity, our new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been united to him. We who have been saved through faith in him, through his electing uh, mercy, the Father calling us, or rather choosing us before time memorial, the Son paying for our sins on the cross, and then the Holy Spirit applying that and indwelling us, not just so that we will be brought to Christ and cleansed of our, our sin debt, but also so that we will be made over again after his image. And so being conformed to the image of Christ and being truly his in the midst of a world that is not, obviously, uh, conformed to the image of Christ is one of the main uh, applications here. But uh, before we turn to God's word, let's go before him. God, our gracious Father, Lord, I am a weak man, and I am not able to open up your word or divide it if you do not give me your, your spirit's help. Lord, I do pray that you would teach me to divide the word aright for your people. Remind me, these are your precious lambs, and let me never say anything that is not in keeping with your word. I do not want simply to share my opinions about things, but to convey truly and faithfully what your Apostle Paul had to say. For Lord, you gave him those words through your inspiration, Lord. He brought forth what it was that you wanted him to tell the church. Help us then to understand those things. And now, Lord, be with us. Open our ears. Help us. We know, Lord, that whenever your word is being preached, it's spiritual warfare, Lord. We know that this will be the time when we'll be distracted by thoughts. We'll suddenly become unaccountably sleepy. Kids will become irritated and nagging. And, oh, Lord, everything will conspire to stop us from growing in grace. But we pray, Lord, that you would hedge us about and that you would help us and that you would fix our attention on that word that gives life. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to start reading with verse 1. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. The uh, great philosopher Clint Eastwood, in one of his uh, movies commented, a man's got to know his limitations, which is very true. 
it is sometimes good to be reminded. In fact, it is almost always good to be reminded of our limitations, to be brought down a peg or two, or to be, um, you know, mercilessly humiliated in something so that our, our, our views of ourselves will become smaller, that we will remember our limitations. Uh, that happened to me. Well, actually, it happens to me on a regular basis. Uh, there's this thing called math. And uh, whenever it comes up, I realize that I wasted my school years, and kids stay in school and do math would be my advice there, and don't be like me. So I have to rely on my, my wife and, and her math skills. Um, but I also encountered a form of humiliation that was good for me when I got to um, uh, Greece or the Hellenistic portions of Turkey and so on, and I was confronted with, uh, literally, I, I didn't really think about it, but uh, the Greeks wrote on absolutely everything that they built, and one of their favorites was they would uh, produce an epigraph talking about uh, either why this altar was dedicated or something like that and so on, and I, I took Greek, I really did for two, three years actually, because I had to repeat the first year, but um, I, I got there and one of the things that uh, happened was, first, every one of their, you know, their epigraphs is in capital letters only. As I said, I think last week, apparently the Greeks spent all their time shouting. But the, uh, uh, the, the fact that I was only used to writing in, or reading rather, in minuscule, one of the other things that I didn't really take into account is the fact that all of these epigraphs literally run together. Okay, there are no spaces. There are no paragraph breaks, certainly, but there are also no spaces with words. So I'm looking at this, and it's almost word salad. It's like, you know, you have those puzzles where you have to find the word in the midst of it, and I would spend, you know, five, ten minutes staring at this thing and be like, oh, oh, it's, it's the word holy there. <laughs> I found it. And, you know, I'd be able to separate it off, and then I'd start to move on to the next word and realize that, that my wife and, and companions had moved on quite some time ago and it was time for me to continue walking. So it was one humiliation after another as I got to these epigraphs. Um, but it was a good reminder to me that when they originally wrote, uh, there, were no, there were no spaces, there were no paragraph breaks, the wonderful breaks that we find in, in the modern versions of the NT Greek, uh, new, that is the New Testament in Greek, they, they didn't exist there. And so um, a lot of the breaks that we find within the New Testament are arbitrary. One of the things that uh, we see in this uh, particular chapter, and I, uh, I agree with Charles Hodge, he actually believed that verses, along with a lot of other commentators, he wasn't the first one to, to notice this, he actually believed that verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 properly actually belong in chapter 4. They're actually the end of chapter 4, so it should read... Um, I'm going to start with verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sweet and a sacrifice to God for sweet smelling aroma. End of chapter, beginning of new chapter with verse 3. But uh, the therefore in chapter, uh, verse 1 rather, of chapter 5 in our Bibles, it immediately refers to us back to the last clause, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. If we have been forgiven, forgiven as God forgave us, what should we do? Therefore, we should be imitators of God as dear children. 
That is what we should be doing. Because we have received so much love, what should we do? Well, we should be showing the love of God. And we should walk according to our calling, according to who we are really in Christ. We find in Ephesians, Paul constantly repeating this this command to us to walk. He's not talking to go out and do physical exercise, although walking is good for us. What's he talking about? He's talking about the way that we live in the world, the way that we deport ourselves before the world. He says, walk in good works. In uh, Ephesians 2.10, he says, walk worthy of your calling in Christ. In Ephesians 4.1, and then in Ephesians 4.17, he says, don't walk as the other Gentiles do in futility. Don't walk in emptiness. Now, how did the Gentiles walk? Well, the answer was they walked not in love, but in hate. In outside of Christ, we sometimes forgive and forget this, but we're filled with, with all sorts of, of, of wretchedness, all sorts of evil that cause us to do evil things to the people around us. I'll give you two examples of that from Paul's work elsewhere where he talks about the way we are outside of Christ. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I want to start reading with verse 28. He says this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unliving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, who was Paul writing to in those verses, aside from you right now? Who was he originally writing to? The Romans. He wouldn't have had to have convinced Roman Christians that that's the way Romans were. They would have seen that every day in the gladiatorial arena and the way that slaves were bought and sold savagely and abused and so on, the way that children were treated, the way that... People cheated one another in the, in the forum and in the agora, the way that they were constantly seeking to ingratiate themselves with Caesar or in the very behavior of their ruler. Who was the ruler at the time that, that Paul was writing that? Nero. An example of, very good, an example of debauchery upon earth. And they could have seen all of those things in him, in his court, and in the Roman rule. But it went further than that. In Galatians, in chapter 5 and verse 19, you may want to go one back from Ephesians again in order to read that. He talks about the the works of the flesh. This is the, the nature of the natural man. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They were the things that marked out the people living in the world. And the Galatians would have been uh, people who recognized those things. But then, of course, in verse 22, in Galatians, he pivots in that. to, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Telling us that those are the things 
that should mark out the Christian. Why? Why is there such a huge difference? Because you are new creations, O Christians. You have a different spirit dwelling within you. You have new desires. You have a new heart. You're living a new life. Therefore, if that's who you are, and you're wildly different, we've already established this from who you were. And keep, keep in mind, he keeps making that point, doesn't he? He says, once you were, but now, therefore. Once you were like this, now you're very different. Therefore, live according to who you are. How should you walk? And he tells us in chapter 5, walk in love. And not just how. How do we walk? But, but why we walk. We walk this way because Christ loved us. And how do we walk? We walk in the same kind of way that Christ loved us. How did he love us? I mean, there's many ways that we can think about how he loved us. He was willing to come to earth to take to himself our, our nature, human nature, and all of the respects except sin, a true body and a reasonable soul, to be born of a woman born under the law in Bethlehem and to suffer humiliation for a time. But ultimately, the greatest way that Christ showed his love was that he was willing to be, as Paul says, an offering for us, a sacrifice for us. And not, he made that sacrifice of himself for our sake, not like so many other people of their time offered sacrifices. Why did they offer sacrifice? They would offer sacrifice if they were Jews, for instance, for their own sins. Or if they were Gentiles, they would offer sacrifices to ingratiate themselves with the gods for their sake, for selfish purposes. But <coughs> Paul tells us Jesus offered up the sacrifice of himself for your sakes in order to clear you of the guilt that you had as a sinner. He did it for us to turn away the wrath of God. I've made this point before, but R.C. Sproul used to shock audiences. He would go to these conferences and he would ask, who did Jesus save us from? Whose wrath? And so many people would answer, the devil. That's not true. Whose wrath did he save you from? God's wrath. God's gracious wrath. It is God who can cast body and soul into hell. And who will on the last day if we're found outside of Christ. But Jesus himself was a sweet-smelling aroma ascending unto God. There was this idea, of course, in the, in the sacrificial economy of the Old Testament that you would take the choicest portions of the sacrifice, the fat. Believe it or not, back then they thought that the fat tasted... It, it does. I'm sorry. I love prime rib. And I hope... Nobody notices. I'm always going to the edge part, you know, first. Oh, that delicious fat. I know they tell me it's bad for me, but everything's bad for me. I think breathing at this point is probably bad for me. Fayetteville water I know is bad for me. But in any event, they would burn the fatty portion and the smell would ascend and the people could smell. Oh, ribeye. Anyway, moving on. It would go on up. But more importantly, the Lord would smell it. That was Jesus. He was a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God, propitiating his wrath, taking away his anger. And Paul says, that's who you should be in the world. Not a stench in God's nostrils, 
Not something offensive because of your uncleanness, your filthiness, like animal dung, but rather you should smell like that sacrifice of Christ after whose nature you are being conformed because he died for you. And Paul identifies, what are those things that make us stinky? What are those things that, that, ugh, that make us a stench in the nostrils of God? He, he says fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. And these things, okay, he's going to attach them to idolatry because they're all things that show our desire to fill our desires with material things that can never fulfill them. A desire to, to pour into that God-shaped hole in all of our hearts the things of this present world and the pleasures that, that can be offered and so on to just try to put them in there when only God can fill that hole in our hearts, that gap that's been left by the fall. And starting in verse 3 of, of chapter 5 here, Paul transitions, note this also, from the earlier things that he was talking about, which were sins against neighbors, lying to one another, uh, being full of wrath, perhaps beating one another up and so on. He turns from those sins against our neighbor to sins against ourselves. These are the sins that others will happily join with us in committing. Or these are the sins we do when no one else is around. The sins that we commit by ourselves. And he says, don't let these things even be named among you. One of the things that Paul was very upset about, uh, he writes to the Corinthian congregation. And when we read the book, uh, 1 Corinthians, you should understand he's writing to a disordered church. He's writing to try to reform practices. Again and again, he refers to letters that he's received that show that there are so many things that are out of whack in the church, not just in the in the worship, but in the relationships, people are, are attacking one another, they're, they're not observing the Lord's Supper correctly, people arrive early, they eat all the food, they drink all the wine, they get drunk, this is a messed up church. But one of the most egregious things that was going on in that church is 1 Corinthians 5, the, the chapter that deals with uh, his being appalled at the fact that there's a man who is committing a sin that not even the Gentiles took part in. Something that they looked down upon. Something that they would have gone, Ew! Who does that? That kind of thing. And that was incest. This was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. We're hoping it's his stepmother, not his mother. But that, that seems to be the indication. But regardless, it was something that even the Gentiles said, That's wretched. And he tells them, don't think that this is something where you can just say, grace, grace, yes, I know he's doing this thing, but that's okay, we're covered by the blood of Christ. No, no, this is something that must not be named amongst you. This is the leaven of sin. If you allow it to stay there, not only will it bring God's wrath down upon your church, it's something that will spread. A sin encouraged and indulged is a sin that begins to spread like wildfire amongst God's people. Get it out. Put it out. Let it not be named among you. And Paul here in Ephesians is not talking about, uh, you know, a sin that everybody in the church knows about. He's talking about the sins you know about in your own life that God knows about. Let it not be named among you. Let it not be something that you know you're doing and that God knows you're doing. Let it be the case that people think of you 
as somebody who in this, sen- in this sense, when it comes to sins, is above reproach. They can't accuse you because everybody would say, that's ridiculous. Him? You're accusing him of that? No, not at all. Even if, the, Paul is saying, even if the Gentiles hate your guts and they make fun of you for your beliefs, let it be the case that they can't say a thing about your character. They can't say a thing about your morals, that you are morally upright. Oh, yeah, well, he never cheats anybody. Oh, yeah, he also, he, he appears to be a model of decor. He's not the kind of guy I think is getting drunk secretly or anything like that, or is up to any sort of fornication or covetousness or anything. And he's a man who's scrupulous in his business dealings. A woman who's absolutely faithful to her husband. We would never think otherwise. The, uh, the actual uh, philosopher, he was a 4th century pagan philosopher, Labanius, he said in, he was, he was upset because in the middle of a debate with a Christian apologist, he breaks out, he says, what women these children, uh, these Christians rather, have. What women these Christians have. They were so very different from the Roman women. The Roman women were always running around, getting divorced. They, they lived pretty much like, you know, how people live in Hollywood right now. That's a picture of it. Their marriages lasted one year, maybe two years, three years, and, and they were always up to something. But Libanius looks at the Christians, and he can't say anything about them. Would that we could, in our apologetics, say, hey, just look at the Christian community. If you want to see the evidences of the work of Christ in the midst of the people... And then you look at it today and you're like, no, wait, don't look at the Christian people. Look rather (laughs) over here. But they could do that back then. And Paul says, let that be the case. Don't let it be, he says in verse 4, take a look at verse 4 here. He says, neither filthiness, the things that should not be named among you, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting. That first word, filthiness, there is iskros. It means something that's deformed, something that's revolting, something that should uh, excite natural disgust, moral disgust. Like when you hear that somebody is committing incest, it should still... One of the things that I'm beginning to worry about is Americans are losing the, 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 the ability to become disgusted, to, to blush at anything. You know, that should be a kind of moment for you. It's, it's something that's morally revolting. It's the opposite of kalos, which means beautiful, which means good. Don't let it be the case that anything's named amongst you that's disgusting, morally revolting, something that should produce disgust, but rather concentrate on those things that are beautiful, that are good, that edify, that build up. You remember he's been talking about that? One of the things that... that Another thing, I mean, there's so many things that worry me about the, the culture today because of, of the way that, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm looking at our culture and going, uh-oh. But one of the things that, that worries the living daylights out of me is that which is good and beautiful. Those things that are genuinely beautiful, those parts of, you know, the, the greatest things that Western culture, for instance, produced. It's art, it's music, it's literature has been thrust aside. Oh no, that's bad. We don't, we don't want to talk about that anymore. Get rid of it. And what have we brought up front? What are we teaching our, ki- our kids in schools? That which is base. That which is disgusting. 
that which is revolting, that which is immoral. We actually have classes now where we concentrate on that. And our high culture has followed that trend. I, I, I watch things and I'm like, doesn't anybody see how ridiculous this is? It's not only morally abhorrent, it's laughable. Recently, the Royal Academy of Dance, the highest of the high schools uh, of, of ballet in England, accepted an ex-rally car driver, a male in his 30s, by the name, uh, he calls himself now Sophie Rebecca, to be a ballerina. And they showed his exhibition where he was graduating. And literally, every time he leapt into the air, and it was not very... I, I don't like ballet, I've got to tell you. I love opera, but ballet I've always been kind of... But I've watched good ballet. And I have to... They're amazing. But this guy in the tutu, whenever he landed, the camera shook. Okay? And it was always, you know... <laughs> and so he does all of this ridiculous flouncing around in, in a ballerina tutu. And then these beautiful ballerinas... Swans, full of grace, come out and they load him down with flowers. <laughs> oh, this is the best! This morally abhorrent display of, of inadequacy and not even mediocrity and ballet, this is the best! And we're all supposed to say, yes, yes, this is the best. Please don't fire me. That kind of thing, related to what we had before. That's what we're pushing up front. The aesthetically beautiful, that which is good, that which is pure, that which is noble. We no longer encourage that. What do we encourage? Well, he goes on to talk about the other things that were marks of the, the Gentile church. Foolish talking, coarse jesting, dirty jokes. Now, there's an interesting, I wish it's one of those cases where in the Greek you can see it very clearly. It's harder to see in the... Uh, in the English, in verse 4, we see neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. That word foolish talking is a Greek word, eutrophilia. It's found uh, nowhere else in the New Testament but here. But what does it mean? It means a form of talking which is empty, but it adapts itself to the society. In other words, it's it's kind of a... It's like a chameleon talk. There's no, there's no underlying principle. It's not the talk we have of, I believe these things that are beautiful and important and pure and true and good, but rather it's a talk that adapts itself to the culture seamlessly. If the culture believes this, eutrophilia moves in that direction. If the culture believes something different, no problem. The wither vein changes and it moves in that direction as well. The circumstances of the moment dictate what kind of conversation is going on. And, and, and simply they're designed to, be, it's designed to be entertaining talk, but empty as well, not having any substance. So eutrophilia is actually, it's, it's contrasted with eucharista, giving of thanks. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But one thing I have to share with you, I love what one commentator had to say about this eutrophilia. He said, it's not scarlet buffoonery, but refined persiflage and bandinage for which Ephesus was famed. It's the first time I've read a commentary and had to look up almost every word in a <laughs> sentence. I had no idea what that meant. Persiflage is light, flippant banter, idle bantering talk or humor, an ironical, frivolous or jeering style 
of treating or regarding a subject, however serious it may be. It's, everything is satirical. Everything is to be made fun of, and so on. Um, and bandinage, which is light, playful banter, nothing serious. It's all very light. It's all very, it's very funny, and so on. If anybody comes in with something serious, oh, we don't want to do that. But Paul says, don't let that be the way you talk. Instead, he says, not eutropelia, but eucharistia, which is, it's contrasted with this, this jesting. Instead, it is grace. It's giving of thanks. It's real cheerfulness of spirit. You see, the reason that they entered into eutropelia was so they would, they would entertain one another, and they would, they would laugh, they would get drunk, they would jest, they would tell dirty jokes, things like that. And you get the, <laughs> for a little while. But Paul says, don't let that be the way that you communicate with one another. Let it be the case that you give thanks and you talk about the things that really are beautiful, that really are eternal, that really do build up, that produce a real joy that doesn't give you a hangover in the morning. That's the kind of thing we should be doing. And then in verse 5, he says that we are supposed to be avoiding covetousness and idolatry. He says this, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater. Now it's interesting, and I didn't realize this when I was was first a Christian. Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness mark someone as an idolater. What does that mean? They're trying to get that which only God gives through other things, through created things. They're trying to get happiness. They are trying to get true joy. And they are attached. They are greedy for the things of this world, not realizing that they're passing away. All of these things are marks of an idolatrous heart. And he says, if you're an idolater, if that's where you find your joy, if you find your joy in seeking after sexual relationships with people you're not married with, if you find your joy in pornography, if you find your joy in dirty jokes, if you find your joy in flirtations, if you find your joy in seeking uh, to accumulate as much money and as much wealth and hoard it to yourself as possible, he says you're an idolater. Your heart is captivated by idols, just as surely as the rich young ruler was captivated by the idolatry of his wealth and social status and wasn't willing to give them up in order to follow Christ. That's idolatry, a violation of the first commandment. And he says, if that's you, you have no part in the kingdom of Christ. If that's what's dominating your heart, you haven't yet come to him. You haven't yet become part of the the kingdom which Christ came to establish that consists of all of those that, you remember we were talking about the invisible church, all of those who who were chosen by the Father and redeemed by the blood of Christ, washed in his blood, and who are being sanctified, who are gradually being made holy because they have a new spirit, a new joy, a new heart. And note this, this is very clear from everything that Paul is teaching. If Jesus is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. If you aren't bowing the knee before Christ, confessing Jesus as Lord, and then seeking to live according to his commandments, never perfectly in this life, we know that, but if if that's not your desire, if that's not your heart's desire, you're not his. Finally, in verse 6, he says, well, almost finally, sorry. He says, don't be deceived with empty words. Do not be drawn aside by, you know, these ideas that will grow up even within the church that we don't actually have to obey, for instance, Christ's commandments. Sophistry, emptiness, 
Things that people tell you to deceive you. God, surely he did not say you're not to eat from every tree in the garden, did he? Hath God really said? And so on. That hath God really said? Hath God truly said these things? Has been going on for years and years and years and always crops up in the church again and again and again. In 2018, there was an example of that that cropped up in the church that was particularly egregious. One of the things that had been going about for quite some time was the idea that, um, and it was a quarrel between two groups. The people who believed in um, side A, Christian homosexuality, and the people who were pushing for something they called side B, Christian homosexuality. Um, And so side A was the idea that you can be a practicing homosexual, that you can sleep with members of the same sex, you can be engaged in those relationships openly, physically and so on, and still be a Christian and still get into the kingdom. To be guilty of those things that God calls an abomination and says specifically mark out people who are not part of his kingdom and yet still be a Christian. That was the side A. Side B people are saying, no, those are still sins. They really are. But we can desire them with all of our heart and identify ourselves with that particular sin. And so call ourselves homosexuals. But as long as we don't participate in them, we're okay. Now, the Bible says to us, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are fundamentally different. It doesn't mean that we don't have sexual uh, urges that are not good from time to time and so on, but certainly we do not mark ourselves out by them. We do not define ourselves by sinful behavior. I'm a side B idolater. I'm a side B thief. I'm a side B pedophile. I'm a side B etc. But still a Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian thief, a Christian pedophile, a Christian prostitute, a Christian you name it. Because you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, then you are a Christian. And that's it. Not a hyphenated Christian. You are Christ's person. You are his. You are his, his doulos. His bondservant. Slave, really. And that's who you will always be. But if we identify ourselves with sin and we allow our hearts to be full of it, then all we're really doing is just trying to whitewash the outside. That's no different from what the Pharisees did. You know, some form of modern monkery where we say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that my, my identity. I'm going to indulge in that culture. I'm going to be on the fringes of it, but not actually go all the way. That, that's not right. That's empty talk. That's deceiving. Now, I want you to read something uh, or hear something. I'll read it. You hear it. Um, it was written by Hodge, Charles Hodge, in the late 19th century, long before anybody thought any of this was possible. But think about the definition I just gave you of side B Christianity or side B gay Christianity and then listen to what he had to say. It is urged that they have their origin in the very constitution, that is these sinful desires, in the very constitution of our nature, that they are not malignant, that they may coexist with amiable tempers and that they are not hurtful to others, that no one is worse for them if no one knows them, etc. Hodge already had spotted this tendency towards antinomianism within the Christian community, where people said, well, you know, that's just who I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian kleptomaniac, and so on. I, I, you know, I'm never going to lose that desire to steal things. But as long as I don't indulge it, then it's okay. It's not harmful. Hodge and Paul, more importantly, point out, no, actually it is. Let it not be named among you. Even if you're the only one who knows about it, let it not be named among you. 
Let it not be the case that you ever indulge those kind of things. We are people who are called not to join in the things of darkness. That's his final statement. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't be partakers with those who are indulging in those things that lead to hell, that mark the people who are on the path of foolishness, the path that leads to destruction. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul pointed out to all Christians, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. If we spend all of our time with people who are engaged in filthiness, coarse jesting, emptiness, and all of the hateful behaviors that were identified before, what will happen? It will rub off on us. One of the things that I have often seen, and it's, uh, it's, it's so alluring to believe this, it's called the myth of influence. It's this idea that I'm going to involve myself with groups of people who are indulging in all of these, these frankly, immoral, non-Christian, and so on behaviors. I'm going to, to thrust myself into that, into that community, and then gradually my Christianity will rub off on them and they'll become Christianized. What happens in that situation is exactly the reverse. You become de-Christianized. You become less and less aware of, for instance, the coarseness of your language. Now, there is an obvious application of this. There are some environments where you are essentially thrust into that, because of your job, thrust into that corrosive environment on a regular basis, and you can't escape it. You're surrounded constantly by people who are full of the, you know, that coarse jesting, uh, the filthy talk. Uh, they're engaged in fornication on a regular basis and so on. Um, those of you who have any contact with the armed forces of the United States will be aware of, of that kind of environment and so on. And how do you serve in the midst of that environment without being entirely corrupted by it? Well, the answer is you stand firm for Christ. You remember who you are. You remember who rules over you. You remember who you are called by. And you spend as much time as you possibly can in the Christian community and under the means of grace and constantly being edified. You seek out the godly chaplains, the men who really do know the Lord when you're on deployment. You look for Christians within your unit. Believe it or not, they're, they're there. Sometimes they are trying to do the secret agent Christian thing. They don't want people to know the truth about them. You can be an encourager to them. You can stand with them and help them to, to, to stand up for the faith. And not be, you know, offensively flamboyant, remembering always that you've been called in the army to, to serve Caesar. You're the, uh, you're the leading edge of America's violent foreign policy, let's face it. That's, that's your calling. And so you have a duty there to fulfill, but at the same time, never forget who you are. Never forget what your primary calling is. Now, it doesn't have to be, obviously, the military. Another place where the environment is incredibly corrosive these days is academia, going to college. When you go to college, you will be surrounded by people who do not have the same worldview you do. They will be full of non-Christian ideas. They will have an entirely different moral and you will find all of this foolishness, this jesting, this fornication. The average, unfortunately, American student graduates from college these days, the majority of them with some form of STD. That's how promiscuous students are at this point. And a huge number of them now identify 
as LGBTQ, or at least are very, very well disposed towards it. For the Christian, this is a very different environment and a very difficult environment to be in. Who can help us to stand in the midst of this? Well, how about the organization that Jesus said that he would create here on earth and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it? And that is, of course, the church. Brothers and sisters, it is possible. It's not wonderful for us to be cast into environments where our, our faith is under attack, where we're dealing constantly with, with filthiness and coarse jesting and worldviews that are utterly opposed to our own. It's not, it's not optimal for our faith, but nonetheless, the Lord has given us the resources and in this, in this country, the means to pursue them in order to stand firm where we are. I would encourage you, where, wherever you are, Whatever you're doing, stand firm for Christ. Remember who you are. And remember your walk, even when nobody is watching. Remember it. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm in the faith, to remember who we are called to be, to remember how thankful we should be. Let our walk be marked by love, but true love, Lord, not, not uh, a ridiculous, light, frivolous, moving in the directions constantly of what society calls love, either eros or progressivism or whatever it is that they're calling love at that moment in time. May it be that we define love the way that you define it according to your word. May we, O Lord, be gracious to others, remembering where we were when you found us. Help us to be quick to share the gospel. And Lord, help us never to be so foolish as to think we can stand by ourselves without the aids that you have given us. Lord, may it be that we stand firm in the faith, looking towards Christ and running the race until the day that we cross the finish line and when there will no longer be any of these things that have dragged us down. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.